1964 in Ypsilanti, Michigan, there were three men who all believed that they were Jesus Christ. These three men were named Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, and they were in an asylum, and a psychiatrist by the name of Milton Rokich was brought in to work with these gentlemen. But after two years of laboring with them, he was unable to break their delusions. So he tried an experiment that would prove to be risky. He put all three of them in the same room. They slept in bed side by side. They ate all their meals together. They had their therapy together. They did all their chores together. But after all of this, Dr. Rokich still could not break them of their delusions. He does recall one humorous encounter. They were all sitting around at group therapy, and Clyde just decides to stand up and say, I am Jesus, the Messiah. I was sent here to save the world. And Dr. Rokich very calmly said, "Uh, how do you know that? He said, because God told me, and another one stood up and said, I never told you that. Thank you. Nobody in the first service laughed at that, so I appreciate it. There have been many people throughout the centuries who have had a Messiah complex. Countless numbers of individuals have claimed to be Jesus, yet none of them match the original description. None of them were authentic, which brings us to this passage of Scripture. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's my question for you this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? That may be the most important question you ever answer. And your answer to that question is, means everything. I don't mean to overstate it, but that answer is a life and death question. It means everything to us because there are no shortage of Jesuses in our culture today. You have the Democrat Jesus, you have the Republican Jesus, you have the Socialist Jesus, you have Touchdown Jesus that helps you win Super Bowls, you have the Jesus that is there to affirm your identity, but otherwise be rather uninvolved in your life. You have the Jesus that just uh, simply gets you going again, uh, that, that is there to affirm all your choices, whether good or bad. There are a lot of different Jesuses in the world. And then there's this Jesus, In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Zero in on, in Him we have redemption. You see, not every Jesus can redeem. Democrat Jesus can't. Republican Jesus can't redeem. Socialist Jesus can't redeem. 
Touchdown Jesus certainly can't redeem. Only this Jesus can. Only the one that Paul describes here in Ephesians. And these Ephesian Christians would have fully understood the concept of redemption. Now, redeemed literally means the price of release. And the basic New Testament idea is to buy with a price or to buy back. Now, in the first century, this concept was related to two different things. First, you had the price paid to release someone or something as a pledge or put in pawn. And then secondly, it was the price paid to liberate a slave, to purchase that slave's freedom. Situation one had to do with prisoners of war. Wars were often financed by selling prisoners into slavery. And slave merchants would actually follow around these, these armies so that they could hopefully buy some slaves to take for themselves. A prisoner of war sold into slavery had only one recourse if they ever wanted to get out of slavery, and that was a family member who could buy them back. But that was rare. It was unusual for someone to have a family member that was able to foot the bill to buy them back. So a lot of prisoners of war ended up killing themselves, committing suicide, because they'd rather be dead than serve as as a slave. The second situation had to do with a common slave. And a common slave's only hope for freedom was that they might be able to pay off their debt. Many times people sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debt, and maybe they would earn a wage. It was minuscule. And every so often they would drop part of that wage into the temple treasury. Although they could never buy back their freedom all at once, If they stuck with it long enough, little by little, they might eventually be able to, after they put enough money in the temple treasury, they would go with their slave owner, they would go to the priest, and the priest would pay the owner the price of his freedom out of the treasury that he had dropped in, the slave had dropped in, and that would be the day of that slave's redemption. But the key was redemption. That's the only way freedom could be brought about. Someone had to pay in order for the slave to be free. And it's against this backdrop that Paul ties in the sacrifice of Jesus and the freedom that his blood provides. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You get the idea. With regular redundancy, Paul links Jesus to redemption. And rightfully so. I mean, it's only because of Jesus that we have any hope of being released from slavery. Because you do realize that we are all slaves. Christian or non-Christian, we are all slaves. That's what Paul is driving at. That's his point here. That all of you are slaves, either through law or through wickedness, or both. You know, the law condemned anyone who disobeyed the law, and every Jew had disobeyed the law. Every person, Jew or non-Jew, was guilty of evil, which is why Paul wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether by disobedience to the law or wickedness or both, every person was a slave spiritually. 
and no spiritual slave had any hope of being set free. Outside of Christ, that is. Let me ask you, who is this? Anybody know who that is? That's not Barry with his long beard. That's Chewbacca. Okay, let me ask you, who is this? You know that guy? Yeah, you said Frankenstein. It's actually Herman Munster, but yeah, good. Next, you know who that guy is? Good. So here's the deal. You're right, but you're also wrong. Because that first picture, that's not Chewbacca. That's Peter William Mayhew, the seven-foot-three-inch actor who played Chewbacca. The next guy was not Herman Munster. It was Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn, some of you older folks, this will really date you. You may remember Car 54, Where Are You? That's Fred Gwynn who played Herman Munster. The next guy is Lou Ferrigno, a bodybuilder who happened to be Bruce Banner's alter ego who played the Incredible Hulk. Do you know what we call it when someone plays a role so well they can't get away from it? You ever heard of that? There are people like these men who played their role so well, they really couldn't take on another role because people only remembered them in the role that they were most famous for. Do you know what we call that? Typecasting. Yes, exactly. Wouldn't it be great if every single one of us sitting here this morning were typecast? How awesome it would be. There's one. There's certainly a typecast person right there. Wouldn't it be awesome if every single one of us looked so much like Jesus that we couldn't get away from it? That our identity was completely lost, that it, you were no longer Bob Richards, you're Jesus. No longer Stan Potter, you're Jesus. You look like Jesus, you act like Jesus, so much so that you can't get away from that identity. Of course, we're not actors, at least hopefully we're not. We are imitating our Savior. We are following in the footsteps of the one who redeemed us, right? You look at Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You know, a few years ago, there was this guy named Carl J. Joseph who walked through 13 countries and 47 states dressed in a, a white robe or cloak and barefooted. And many people believed that his resemblance to Jesus was uncanny. At least the artist's renderings of Jesus, right? They believed he looked so much like Jesus that many people started following him. He gathered a multitude of people who would follow him into churches. Is that what Paul is driving at? That we just need to put on a, a white robe and walk around barefoot, grow out our beard and try to look as much like Jesus as possible? Obviously not. That's a cheaper version of Jesus. That's a knockoff of Jesus. No, we are called to be imitators of Jesus. 
Being a genuine imitator has less to do with outward appearance and more to do with our hearts. It's a walk, Paul says, a walk of love, and it's a wise walk. It's a walk that reflects who we are and what we claim. It's a walk that screams, I am redeemed, because that's your identity now. It's who you are at your core. You know, when a person has been rescued, they can't help but talk about it. If you were drowning and near dead, and somebody pulled you out of the water, you would probably thank them for doing that. You would probably remember that for the rest of your life. You would give honor to where honor is due. That person would be your hero for saving your life. If you were near death, and a doctor came in and saved your life, you're probably going to leave a pretty good Google review about that doctor. You know what you do when you're rescued? You proclaim a hero. You tell the story to anyone who will listen, right? That's what's happening here. Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Have you been redeemed? Well, have you? Then say something, right? Then talk about it. Tell anybody who will listen. People should be able to look at you and say, you know, there's something different about you. Oh, well, let me tell you what it is. I've been redeemed. People shouldn't almost faint when they hear that you're a disciple. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you been redeemed? Then say something. You are among the rescued. And do you know what rescued people do? They tell their story. They talk about their hero. Our lives should shout, I'm redeemed. Christ has saved me, so therefore I live like it. How many of you know who this is? This guy had a profound impact on my life when I was a kid. I used to watch his PBS show in the 80s and even in the early 90s. His name's Bob Ross, and Bob Ross was a prolific painter, and he hosted a show called The Joy of Painting. And he would take a blank canvas and he would slosh paint on it, and after 30 minutes, it turned into a beautiful sunset or a, or a, snow, a snow-packed mountain landscape, whatever it may be. But for about 20 minutes of the 30-minute show, you didn't have any idea what he was painting. He'd slosh paint up there, and he'd tell you, but you're like, I don't really see it. But by the end, it was a beautiful masterpiece. In the Old Testament, we see the same thing. We see God using painters, prophets, to paint a portrait. And they don't even know what it is they're painting. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine painting a sunset beach landscape and you've never seen a beach and you've never seen a sunset? Can you imagine that? Imagine what it would be like to paint a mountain landscape but you've never seen mountains. You'd have no point of reference. And that's kind of what we see in the Old Testament. These prophets are painting a picture, but they don't even know what it is. They're just listening to God. All of this is a portrait of redemption. And it begins back in Genesis chapter 3. Notice what it says. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. All of this comes about because this serpent... This talking snake comes up and convinces Eve to eat from the wrong menu. Adam does the same, and now we have the fall of man, right? Someone once said that all of Scripture is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. Now, I don't know if that's true, but here's what I do know is true. Every piece of Scripture after this, the fall, is about redemption. The story begins here. And it's all about redemption. It's all about God's plan to buy his people back from Cain and Abel to Seth and Noah to Abraham. God was working out the details. Look at Genesis chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1 it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there is a seed of hope. God's plan for redemption includes a rescuer that will come from the line of this couple who are well advanced in years. The woman is barren and yet she is going to make along with Abraham, a great nation, right? As crazy as all that sounds, God comes through like we knew he would, like he always does, and Isaac is the miracle child born to Abraham and Sarah. He is the son of promise, the son of prophecy, the son of miraculous birth. Sound familiar? But no sooner does Isaac arrive on the scene that God seems to be ready to take him away. And God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, on the altar, and in a sense, Abraham follows through. Figuratively, of course, but Isaac is sacrificed and raised up in a figurative sense. And Isaac prefigures someone else, right? He prefigures Jesus. He is a shadow of what is to come. In Abraham, we see what one man was willing to do for the love of God. And it was all foreshadowing to a greater sacrifice. Because at Calvary... We see what God would do for the love of mankind. A thousand years removed from the story of Abraham, David buys a little plot of land in the same area, in that same region, and he builds an altar to worship God. Abraham almost sacrificed his son in that same region. And now, on that same property, David's son Solomon builds a temple. A thousand years pass, and on that same land, a father sacrifices his son. But this time, there's no ram in the thicket. This time, there's no one to say, stop, don't do it. No, God follows through, sacrificing his only begotten son so that we can be redeemed. So think about this. Abraham offered his son. Heavenly Father offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried the cross. Isaac was laid on the altar. Jesus was nailed to the cross. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac. Jesus was offered in the place of us. Abraham received his son back alive. And God received his son back alive. Notice Genesis 22, 
verse 15 and following. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the whole crazy proposition that this elderly couple was going to have a child late in life and that all the nations would be blessed through, through Abraham, this whole thing is starting to take shape, right? Do you see the portrait? You see the portrait coming into view. You can start to see it form. And although it is unfinished, you can make out the, the image of a man, right? Paul's words to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How about now? You starting to see it? Keep reading. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He's, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So the Old Testament is both provisional and anticipatory. And ultimately, it's superseded by something new and something better. Keep reading. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because we are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, the Galatians had lost their focus. They were not focused in the right direction. They were fixated on the Old Testament. And Paul turns their eyes back to the cross toward the fulfillment of it all, toward the incarnation of everything that God had promised after the fall. You see, Paul is removing the cover from the canvas. He pulls the sheet off the canvas and he reveals the portrait, the portrait of a man, Jesus Christ. And the name of this masterpiece is Redemption. Jesus is the central figure of it all. He's the seed, the Messiah, the original, the one who redeems. A few years ago, there was a, a story in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, City Tries to Pump Up Its Crews Down Under. There was a new guy in charge of the Chicago Sewer Department, and he wanted to boost morale. So he organized a pep rally at the Plumbers Union Hall, and 800 people showed up. A huge banner hung on the wall that read, bringing sewers above ground, and the new boss shouted to the crowd, winning is not a sometimes thing, it's an all-the-time thing. Apparently, it's hard to boost morale when you work in the sewers. And this guy wanted to kind of bring people up a notch. There are some of you this morning that live your week in the sewer. Maybe in your job, it's a dark, filthy place. Unfortunately, maybe in your home. Maybe your home's a sewer. Maybe there's other areas of your life where you need to be brought up from the dark filth and gunk that's why you love Sunday. You love coming here because you get to get cleaned up, but then you have to go right back to it on Monday, right? 
when we face the filth and the gunk, when it seems like we, we are at rock bottom, when it seems like we're in the sewers, one thing that we can remember is that this life is going somewhere, that this isn't all that there is, that we have been redeemed. And because we have been redeemed, we don't spend our life underground. We rise up. We have something far greater to look forward to. We have hope. So we get the gunk off of our hearts. Even though our souls may smell like a cesspool, Sunday is a time when we can come up from the sewers and we can put on that white robe and we get to do, you know, we get to do priestly things as we come into the presence of our Lord and take communion and sing songs of praises. Don't let it in there, right? Take this back to the life that you live during the week, even if it's somewhat sewer-filled. Remember that you are redeemed. When you go back to the sewer tomorrow or the next day or wherever you live during the week, keep singing, keep shouting, and keep proclaiming these words. Say them with me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And keep saying it. Keep reminding yourself. Keep telling it to others. You have been redeemed and redeemed people tell other people about their redemption. They talk about their hero. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let us say it often with our mouths and with our lives. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for redemption. We thank you that we have a redeemer, a hero, and that this life is going somewhere because of it. May we sing your praises, may we live at the center of your will, and may we talk about our hero to anyone and everyone. May the redeemed of the Lord say so. We love you, God, and it's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I realize that there may be someone here this morning that needs prayer. Maybe you're ready to make a change in your life. Maybe you want to study the Bible with someone. Maybe Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and begin a daily walk with God. I want you to know that this is a church family that will love on you and help you. We are all limping disciples, right? And we all have a certain amount of sewer in our lives that we're trying to rise above. Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.